0: Sorry about that movie.
1: Which
2: movie? So,
3: if if you uh, if you remember correctly, dear listeners,
0: and you like pina coladas. in our
3: and you like pina coladas, dear listeners, um, during our last episode, we said that there is no film that we had already watched that we wouldn't watch again before Daredevil. And yet, <laughs> we're here to talk about Daredevil again, specifically the director's cut of Daredevil. Uh, just to to give you a brief introduction to your panelists today. Um, oh God, dude, I forgot what uh, what name I had assigned you last time. Hold on, just a second. Um, uh, let's see, Mister Daniel was Watson, the stilt man, pa- pa- right? pa- uh, We we have the Stilt Man, Patrick Regan, Yo. on my digital left. Uh, we have Leapfrog, Nick Bester. <laughs> I gave you that just because I know you appreciate Brickfrog. <laughs> Brick Frog. Brick Frog. Brick Frog. And then uh, Daniel Watson-Jones, who is uh, Blackwing, who is the expert trainer of bats.
2: That's why the bats are in the the thing. Blackwing was making a sneak attack. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yeah, I'm I'm Blackwing.
0: (laughs) Yes, these names will never be used again. They will not be on the test.
1: (laughs) Yes, and for some reason, Patrick is doodling... uh, in the background, including what looks like a giant cat
0: head, but is apparently Daredevil. Mm-hmm.
3: You, the traditional, uh, the original artist's interpretation of Daredevil.
0: Do you think that we should try to call each other by our, our episodic nicknames? No. I sometimes uh, forget your real name.
1: The <laughs> episode? All right. Wait, what was your name again? I forget. My, Who is is your? Blackwing? This Blackwing? is a multi-person call. Batwing? Blackwing? Blackwing. What was Blackwing?
0: You're going to make it on right. right. the Three X and a dog? That was a Tick reference black, for anyone yeah. out
3: there. No, black, Blackwing, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I got nothing. Yeah. I was trying to make a black exploitation
0: Batman reference. It's probably best that you didn't. Yeah. Okay.
3: All okay. Right. So, uh, in other news, we're talking about Daredevil again.
0: Can I be Blackwing Carruthers? And Patrick can be Stiltman Carruthers? <laughs> Stiltman Carruthers! And Leapfrog Carruthers? And the Matador Carruthers? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
3: The Matador Carruthers.
0: Yes. Okay. The Carruthers
1: clan. (laughs) Why did... Is that Stiltman or a Dalek behind
2: you, Patrick? It's it's Stiltman. That's why he has long legs. Excellent. Can you write Carruthers a Stiltman? It's entirely up to you.
3: (laughs) Mm. Uh, Visual aids work great on audio podcasts.
0: (laughs) Yes. All right, all right. Enough
1: of this bullshit. Let's talk about Daredevil Director's Cut. Enough of this
3: bullshit. Let's talk about this bullshit. So... (laughs) daredevil the director's cut um we we talked a little while about if we actually wanted to do this um
2: <laughs> did any of us want to do this um, i did but i'm weird i'm glad no, that but, we did but, this i'm yeah very glad. i, 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 I did. am too I and, want to do and it.
3: the the reason that we chose to actually go through the director's cut is not only was this the version of the film that was originally intended for theatrical release, mm-hmm. but it is in a lot of ways a fundamentally different film would, than yes, what we
0: got. Say completely. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah there, there, there were not just... Uh, it's not just a matter of dropping in a couple of scenes for, uh, for fan service. It's a dramatically different film than what was released. Yes. And I think it's worth discussing uh, what those differences are, how they impacted how we viewed the film, and in, in a broader sense, what... Uh, what might have happened had this been the version of the film that had been released. And through that, it. I think we could understand a little bit more once we get beyond the fact that the film was cut up going into theaters, what is actually right and wrong about this film? Um, opening thoughts. Let's, uh, let's start with you, Dooch. Uh,
0: I, in, I would say about 20 minutes into this film, it, it had already become apparent to me that this was the true version of the film. Uh, uh-huh. it, I, I, I wasn't watching it side by side with the theatrical, so I couldn't remember, you know, specifically where and how much voiceover there was in the theatrical cut, but it uh-huh. felt to me like there was significantly less in it, it within the first yeah. 20 minutes. Uh, and then throughout the film, I, uh, I, <laughs> I guess the easiest way to, the best way to put it is that while watching this film, at no point did I want to vomit. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: Which is an improvement.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Best. Although, good people around if you have food poisoning. Mm. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm not entirely sure that it necessarily rises to the level of a great film now, but it's definitely a decent or even a good film uh, in this form. Uh, a couple things I noticed was I felt like I had a much better sense of sort of how. Um, Matt Murdock sees and experiences the world in this uh, movie like we talked about uh, last time how sort of outside of that sequence where you see him sort of getting ready for the day there's not really any sense after that scene that he actually is a blind man mm. uh, and you have sequences that sort of I think do a bit jo- better job of sort of showing how, how it is that he's experiencing the world and there's just more interactions with uh, his friend John Favreau's character Froggy Frog- Foggy, foggy, boggy, excuse me. Um, and it sort of, I think, really fleshes out their relationship. Uh, and you get a lot more of him as a lawyer, and I think that helps quite a bit. Um, and one of my favorite... Uh, this is actually one of the things that is cut out of the movie from the director's cut. Uh, they take out the love scene between uh, Daredevil and Elektra, mm-hmm. which I think uh, strengthens that scene. Because as it plays out in the original version... They're on the they're on the rooftop with the stupid rain effect, uh, and Daredevil hears some people in need of help, and Elektra talks him into staying, and they have stupid the room sex. <laughs> really um, the room but sex. in this version, in the, in this version, he actually goes and saves the day. He helps he helps stop a uh, a crime in progress, and I think it sort of gives a better sense of sort of the self sacrifice that he has to do. He's not just this. This jerk who decided to bang the hot chick rather than save the day. He had to
2: go off and do mm-hmm. something. Patrick, opening thoughts. I, I was the only person who had come into this having watched the director's cut. I actually bought the director's cut DVD. Who,
3: who, who came into the initial view
2: Yes, thank of you. The film. Uh, the initial, no, I was the only person who actually watched the movie. That's, yeah. the, that's all that always <laughs> happens here. We, making we it up. are the director. <laughs> I have no idea. Um,
0: we I, we Soderbergh. I'm guessing.
2: I, you know, I I I had mentioned in the last podcast that I have this weird emotional connection to Daredevil, um, and that's why I bought the director's cut in the first place. And watching the director's cut again, I was reminded partially why, because I don't know why I bought the director's cut in the first place. It was a long time ago, but watching, I primarily watched the director's cut since then, and so I mostly remembered the director's cut as a movie as opposed to the theatrical cut. It's very odd, the, the differences. They are fundamentally different movies. One's PG-13, one's R. The priest, who knows Daredevil's secret in the theatrical cut, does not learn that he's Daredevil until, I would say, about the third act of the movie,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, which is a pretty mm-hmm. significant change. Uh, ben Yurk is running around doing a lot more investigative journalism. You can follow how the kingpin gets outed. The plot is mm-hmm. much stronger and much feels much more firm, and mm-hmm. the editing is a lot is a lot better. The things don't jump around quite as oh, thank badly. God for that. They still have the, but the thing is, is that a lot of the a lot of things that gave the original movie problems, such as the bad CGI and mm. the really weird flying transitions, they're still there. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, they're more tolerable now because the plot. There's a plot that makes a lot of sense. It's a much darker story, I think, than the theatrical cut. And for, at one point, Matt gets into a car with a guy, blind. Now, drives... now, now, now,
3: pa- pa- Patrick, Patrick, we have to stop there, because that scene alone is going to warrant a considerable amount of
2: discussion later. That is true. I'll, oh, I'll stop yes. there. It is, but I will say, it is a much darker story. And yes. one of the things I wonder, and we may talk yeah. about this later, is that I was trying to piece together some of the changes and some of the scenes that were shot for the theatrical cut versus for the director's cut, and they don't quite add up uh-uh. insofar as, specifically the priest. The priest was the one that really caught me. Is yeah, yeah. There, there's no way all those scenes can string together to make a coherent storyline. So at some point, they they had to reshoot, or they got new marching orders halfway through filming.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, there are there are a number of it's not just a matter of adding scenes. There were scenes removed.
2: Exactly this version of the film because they were contradict It would have been contradictory had they all been in place. Wait a minute. Are you
0: saying that mm-hmm. um, that there were scenes removed from the theatrical cut to make the director's cut? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had been assuming yeah. that the the director's cut was the original intended cut of the film, and mm-hmm. then they, when they changed it and said it needs to be PG-13, then. Uh, then the theatrical cut was produced. So I was it thinking was, of the dire- director's cut yeah. as the first.
3: I, I, th- I think it was, and then I think what Patrick is saying is it seems like there were reshoots that were done okay, to yeah, fill yeah. in gaps. Yeah, right.
1: yeah, there were scenes that had to be put okay. in. So, like the scene that we're not talking about yet, but that we'll get to, there's crucial plot information in that mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. that they then have to shoot a new scene to contrive a reason that Matt okay. knows this.
2: Gotcha. So, and they'd like, be. That they were so intent on getting this down, they didn't just recut it. They mm-hmm. went back and reshot it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. So I,
3: I think everything that each of you has said is true and I agree with. For me, there were three things that really came through more strongly in this film uh, one was the plot uh, as we talked about before, the, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not I'm not, joking. yeah, there, there was an actual plot <laughs> yes. that crossed Matt's life as a lawyer and as daredevil. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't classify it as a particularly strong plot. It was fairly by numbers, mm-hmm. but it was there and it provided a backbone to the film that it was lacking in the theatrical mm-hmm. cut. That's mm-hmm. one. Um, Two, I think that you get a much stronger sense of Matt's internal journey and what the yes. progression that he has to go through is and what the real challenge that he faces is in the film. And three, tied mm-hmm. in with that, I think you get a much stronger sense of not just that the relationship with Elektra is important to him, but why that relationship is important to him. And yeah. what, what I think it comes together to be in the end is, you know, again, n- not, as you said, Nick, not a great film, necessarily. Maybe not even a good film, because there still are some glaring problems. Mm-hmm. But a uh, a flawed film rather than a bad film. Yes. Yeah, um, dooch
0: Oh, uh, I... As with most things that I watch, my expectations certainly affected uh, the the mood that I was in as I was watching it, my opinion of it, throughout. Uh, and I think because <laughs> I had watched the theatrical cut twice and had disliked it even more ten years later, the second time, uh, I really felt like this was a good film. But, yeah. again, I was, for at least one of the acts, I was only sort of half-watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't I didn't feel the need to turn it off constantly. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: So, so let's um, let's kind of hit these points one at a time. First of all, before we begin, though, I finally figured out who's uh, who the priest, his relative version is. Because like, we established in the last one, the priest is the poor man's <laughs> someone. I finally figured out he's the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yep. I can give, I'll give that okay. to you.
3: Um, Does Harry so Dean first... Stanton
0: not enter the Marvel Universe until Avengers? I think I so. I
3: can't remember him in anything. I don't think okay. so. Before
0: that.
2: Yeah. Just curious. Um,
3: which is, you know, statistically he should have appeared in a Marvel
2: film would before so. the
3: Avengers.
2: <laughs> yeah. He have...
3: Has M. Emmett Walsh made it
1: into one yet? I don't so. think so. I
2: don't yeah. know who that is. A, he was... Uh, there's a game called... He... Me...
3: What? He was, the, he was uh, Captain Brian in Blade Runner. And yeah. the... He's the bad guy in Blood
0: Simple. Blood Simple. I have not seen Blood Simple. Um, oh, and seen, he was—he was, okay, uh,
3: he was Nicholas up. Cage's uh, coworker in Raising Arizona.
0: I've seen Raising Arizona once, and it was more than ten years ago. We it's, could probably figure out what his okay. Marvel universe. I, you I, would, I just looked up his photo. So you would
1: almost—you would almost certainly recognize Emmett yeah. Walsh if you saw yeah.
0: Yeah. him. Apparently, he was He's in the jerk as well. Yeah.
3: How dare you not have sure a, f- <laughs> <laughs> a picture of Emmett Walsh on your wall?
2: <laughs> I do.
3: Yep. So if we're <laughs> good. If we're going through and hitting kind of the, the points of change and things that are different, um, you know, we, we have a plot in this film and we discover the plot with the help of a special guest star.
2: Coolio. Special guest star Coolio.
3: Star of Batman and Robin uh, and Leprechaun in the Hood.
2: Any thoughts on Coolio? I mean, he's stunt casting.
3: The Coolio plot's...
1: Oh, yeah. it's stunt casting absolutely, but I mean the that that plot line really does add a lot yeah. to it. I mean, there's there's a lot of breadcrumbs that are established early on that very significantly lead to how Wilson Fisk is caught uh and is outed as the uh outed as the uh the kingpin and just even sort of establishing this early on as being kind of a mystery, you get a bit of a pass for like Back, backloading some of the plot details right there. So, like, right away you sort of know, okay, we're going to figure out the plot mm-hmm. later. But as there's no sort of mystery element in the first movie, the lack of the plot appearing initially seems much more I, So, so d- does
3: it, Does anyone want to summarize, um, briefly kind of the Coolio plot?
2: I'll do it. Okay. Uh, so, briefly, yeah. it, uh, Matt and Foggy are given Coolio as a uh, defendant, a client. Um, I should add that Although we really, all of us did enjoy the the new trial stuff they did, uh, mm-hmm. it's, the lawyering, exactly what kind of lawyer they are, is still super vague.
3: Yeah, yeah, we, we, we yeah. don't really, they, they seem to be functioning yes. as defense lawyers it's, here.
2: It, it's what I call comic book they... lawyering. Like, I'm currently reading the She-Hulk run, and do you know what kind of lawyer <laughs> she does? Lawyering, she does? Uh, lawyering. Law. lawyering, yeah. She does law, And yeah. I should add, it's one of the great, it's a really great run, but it's still law. It's, anyway, yeah. Plus, yeah. Is that right next but we to, also get to the, see uh, the see science building? Doing... At, uh,
0: is the law building right next to the science building? At, at Columbia. Yeah, yes. Columbia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where Spider-Man goes.
2: My, back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> they Sorry. take Julio on as a client. He is currently charged with the murder of a prostitute. I think Lisa, Lisa Tazio. I, thank you, Lisa Tazio. Daredevil decides to take him on because he knows that coolio is innocent because, they because call, he hears the heartbeat. yeah he hears a heartbeat which they call back to, they call back to from the first scene which they actually use a lot more they play a lot more with the heartbeat thing they yes. break into lisa Tazio's apartment and in actually a scene i really enjoyed where we get to see foggy and matt being kind of detectives and we actually mm-hmm. get to see yeah. the non-combat applications of Daredevil's powers it's not just he's good at punching He's really good at investigating because he can feel the indentation from a ballpoint pen in a desk, which is kind of cool. Although, for the record, guns don't use cordite anymore. That is, like, one of the most famous movie incorrections. Um, I didn't know that. Yes, so anytime anyone says they smell cordite, it's not true. Guns what don't if use it's cordite a really anymore. old gun? It's true. For all we know, he was shooting with a... Uh, yeah six you know a uh cold single action army <laughs> he could be he was a very fancy, a very fancy man fancy man the man that we what will he, eventually use only it. civil war replications oh. replicas <laughs> maybe he's secretly a super villain with a civil war replication theme
3: maybe he he's rides civil around war in a man. haunted tank
2: yes the haunted thank you tank. Stephen. Yes. there we go it is, i am sad that we're not doing uh we can't do uh
3: the haunted jonah, tank movie I say
2: jonah hex because i have War uh, related stories related to jonah hex. and real stories <laughs> yes but um so, so coolio is accused
3: of murdering lisa tazio he's being held he's on trial
2: so they're all, they go into the court scene yes. and there's some pretty good stuff with matt not just as showing him as a lawyer but also showing how they, he and Foggy, use the fact that Matt is blind to play their up him
3: being blind like, at
2: all. My favorite—it's a great conversation where they sit down and they're and they're arguing over whether or not they played it up too much or not enough. And he's like, you know, you always want to do the chair thing. The chair thing's embarrassing. I hate doing the chair thing, um, which I really loved. Like that, it just seemed like such a realistic conversation for someone yeah. who is blind to have. To be like, you know what? I am blind. I'm going to use it. <laughs> You, yeah, work? particularly
0: We're, with like one of his oldest friends. And, yeah, like you know, so, someone
2: who Foggy has has been Matt's friend for so long. He kind of has the right to do this sort of thing, and mm-hmm. I really it felt it showed a mm-hmm. depth of that relationship to say no. These two have known each other for a long time.
3: So they're defending Coolio. Yes, we know
2: Coolio didn't do it, but there's and a, there's a cop that gets on put on the stand. He he's directly asked. I don't remember the exact question he gets asked, but somehow he basically said flat out says I saw him do it or something similar yep. to that he says he found and, him with the gun in his hand right uh, thank you that's it Yeah. but yes. his heart keeps beating normally and this throws a big wrench into everything because <gasps> if his heartbeat's not changing if none of the tells that normal human beings have he's telling the truth and this can, actually can I mm-hmm.
3: can I ask a question real quick sure who was that character actor playing that cop because I have seen him in a million things before. he plays cops a lot Right. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he looks yeah, like a guy like... who has played corrupt cops. He's before. on cops. <laughs> um, I'm going to look it up. Keep, keep okay. talking.
2: Okay. Uh, over the course of the plot, uh, at, right after the funeral, Ben Yurik approaches uh, Matt, and rather than kind of give Matt the Electra's Gonna Die spiel, which is probably one of the reshirts, instead he actually wants to talk to Matt about his client, which I assume is why he approached them at the party to begin with. Mm-hmm. And he reveals that Lisa Tazio is an mm-hmm. informant of his, giving him information about the kingpin that she was getting from Pillow Talk from a client, uh, which explains why she was killed. She knew too much and had to be silenced. He then points out that this cop just bought a brand new Mer- Mercedes, three years of a cop's salary. And that's when Matt goes to t- check out this cop. And we get to the scene I was about to reference to earlier, where Matt ambushes him, not as Daredevil, but as Matt Murdoch. Throws him into his car, gets behind the wheel of a car. Remember, that's blind, mm-hmm. and starts driving the car around in the parking lot, smashing into things, essentially to freak the guy out, doing a full-on Batman interrogation. And he gets he at some he just gets pushed to the point where he's like, "Why doesn't your heartbeat change?" And we discover mm-hmm. he's got a pacemaker. Dun 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 I, dun,
3: dun. Dun, dun dun. So dun, uh, to 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 answer the question I just asked, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, this guy who plays the corrupt cop, his name is, uh, Jude, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Jude, uh, He played the, he played David Palmer's chief of staff on 24
0: for four seasons.
3: Um, while we're talking about,
0: uh, (laughs) I, I looked at M. Emmett Walsh's, uh, filmography on Wikipedia. Long, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes, he's been in a lot, and between the current day yes. all the way back to Blade Runner in 1982, he has mm-hmm. been in four things that I have watched. One of which is an animated film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was in <laughs> what animated film was uh, the, the Iron in? Giant? Oh, okay. Uh, but oh, the, the other three things at. are a uh, Time to Kill, uh, The Raven with John <laughs> Cusack, and. Uh, he played Arthur Dales in the X-Files in the uh, flashback episode, The oh, Unnatural, yes. the baseball one. That is a great episode. Yes,
1: he was one of the two Arthur yes. Dales
2: for that was some a great, reason. Be, that was a great.
0: I'll never understand that. We
1: uh,
2: there to was just, a reason, but we don't uh, want to get into it here. I'll tell yeah, you after so, we just stop recording. Yeah, so do yeah, so go hey, on. Sorry. The At which point, the guy, who's at this point fairly shaken, reveals to Matt that if he, it doesn't matter if he puts him behind bars, there's a hundred more corrupt cops where he came from, mm-hmm. which is a very Hydra thing to say, but that's neither here nor <laughs> there. And which is when he <laughs> reveals to Matt that the key piece of information, the Kingpin doesn't just kill you, he kills your family.
3: And two, two points on this. Mm-hmm. Number one, um, th- this is a, a great example of the director's cut not only adding content, but taking it away. Remove this scene, remove this plot line, and Matt has no reason at any point to suspect that the Kingpin is going to target Electra. And this cop tells him this quite explicitly in, in the scene. In the theatrical cut, this plot is filled by doing a couple things. First of all, the scene where Ben Urich discovers that Matt is Daredevil, the Kevin Smith scene, is moved to an earlier point in the film. And then... Ben Urich goes to Matt on the street out of nowhere and says, yeah, you might want to watch out for Electra. She's in trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a very out of place scene. Yeah. He's like, literally, he's just walking down the street and Ben Urich shows up and yells this exposition at
2: him yeah. and runs away.
1: Well, well which the...
2: is something Joey Pants does all the time. It happened to me true. just the other day. <laughs> Joe Pantoliano <laughs>
3: ran,
0: ran out of a <laughs> building and said, Patrick, Patrick, you
3: better protect Electra."
0: It was weird. It fit yeah. with when Jennifer, when Electra uh, did the, essentially the same thing to Matt Murdock at a different point in the theatrical cut, and I guess the director's cut, when she just finds him on the street. Although
3: mm-hmm. she says earlier in the film yeah, that she will find him, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she tells Matt that she'll find him, Yeah. Mm-hmm. and the, okay, so this comes at the end of the playground scene, which is extended slightly. In that little extension, we find out through action that Matt knows who her father is, he knows who Nicholas Nachios is, he picks up quickly that she's being guarded, or followed, and she's trying to shake her guards, and she tells him that she'll find him. So suddenly, the A, her coming back, has a different context, B, his knowledge of who she is has a different context, and we lose all of that in the theatrical cut.
2: We also lose, one of my favorite bits is when he... How he checks his watch—it's such a small yeah, little thing—but yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought of how that's how blind people check their watches. For those of you who didn't watch it, he flips up the glass on his watch, and it's—it's it's a non-digital watch, it's an analog, and he feels the timepieces. And when yeah, I saw I was great. like, "Of course, that's how blind people would tell the time." The
0: other—I'm um, sorry, go ahead. I've known one blind person who had a watch, and it was just a talking watch. <laughs> Although I guess that would probably be yeah, I think for you know yeah. other people around the blind person. Yeah. Probably um, not good for someone who yeah. needs to be quiet at any point. <laughs> <laughs> you could
1: probably you could probably also do some sort of, like, braille thing, I could imagine. Like oh, a digital clock that, cool. like, like, pokes the, up uh, little uh, whole, the dots in a different like pattern. Like the screen that Whistler that uses work. in
0: sneakers.
2: Yes. V- but, yes. But continuing on, the, the plot yeah, is yeah. not quite resolved yet. Um, mm. We then actually cut to no. Foggy, who is the one who breaks this open. Who's being useful. He's super useful in this version. He is sitting... He's not just a douche who puts mustard in in uh, his friend's coffee. He, he's the one
1: who figures out a clue. He still is that douche, well, but he's other things he, as well. He
3: figures out who did it, but Ellen Pompeo helps him figure yes. it
2: out. Yes,
3: uh, gets the assist from
1: Ellen
2: Pompeo. She, yeah, they they figure out the clue that they were looking at they were looking at incorrectly, and that it points to Wesley Owen Welch, the Kingpin's assistant.
3: That. Oddly high build, inexplicably useless side character from the original cut of the film,
2: and now you know why. He's yep. in a lot Certainly more. Suddenly has a point, and
1: played by Leland.
2: At something. this point, this is when the, this. It's at this point that Yurik actually discovers Daredevil in the director's cut. He discovers Daredevil's mm-hmm. identity and gets a call from Foggy, which is what actually sets it off. And a little mm-hmm. bit later, Foggy basically just goes to the cop, the the good cop. Yep. reveals the Wesley. Goes to the cop. Wesley go. Uh, the cop goes to Wesley and basically yeah. shakes him down.
3: And that's why the cops actually come for the
2: kingpin at the end of the film. Because they have actual testimony and yes. evidence that he's the kingpin as opposed to just sort of <sighs> psychically knowing it. Yeah. Magic movie they knowledge. Arrest him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They now, were watching now, the film while it was happening, Magic too.
3: movie knowledge! <laughs> the thing that I actually really like, in addition to the fact that this is a plot, <laughs> the thing that I like most about this is that it ties in very deeply with the character arc that Matt goes through over the course of the film. Uh, what we didn't mention is, so we have the scene, we, have, we still have that terrible club fight at the beginning of the film where uh, Matt chases the rapist down. But it's much better now because at
1: the, in the previous version, it just seemed like a kind of seedy club. Now it's very clear that this is a club populated by other and criminals. And it is
3: the club where the rapist committed the rape. Oh. Yeah,
1: exactly. There's That's... a lot more context to this club mm-hmm. than it was in the original, where it's essentially just some random nightclub with some, you know, kind of burly looking guys who happen to have guns on them that are entirely murdered by Daredevil. He chaste-
3: chases the guy down. Scene ends and Matt goes back to his apartment and we see him you know pulling his tooth out in the shower and you know, taking his pain medication and all of that and then he goes to get in the sensory deprivation tank and when he gets in he stops for a minute because he hears another crime and he shoot there's a very stylish sequence where he sees the crime playing out around him. Mm-hmm. And he chooses mm-hmm. to ignore it and puts himself in the sensory deprivation tank. The crime he ignores is the murder of Lisa Tassio.
0: Yes. yes. And in his defense, ah, he was in extreme was. pain and have, was just about to go to bed. <laughs> but
3: what, 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 what it plays into, though, yes. is, is the journey that we actually see Matt going on in this film. In the original version of the film, it felt a lot like Matt's... The journey Matt goes on is him saying, I'm not the bad guy and then later he doesn't kill a guy after doing terrible terrible things and uses that to justify him not being a bad guy.
2: Right. The yeah.
3: journey that he goes on in this version is Matt has been since his father was murdered almost completely emotionally isolated from the
2: rest of the world. In this version he doesn't even have the priest who he burdens himself on. He's got well, nobody.
3: There's and he I mean this is played up and the the elements around him. I mean he he is in a sensory deprivation tank, and he used that to cut himself off from the world. Foggy tells him in their first uh, one of their first scenes together that he he needs to connect with people. He needs to get out there. There's a scene with the priest in the church where the priest tells him that you know you you don't come here for the quiet. You come here for the solitude, and encourages him to connect with the community in the church. The Matt's entire process at that point becomes that solitude that he's built for himself. And the reason the relationship with Electra is important then is it's him starting to break that down because he finds someone who mm-hmm. is as hurt and is as damaged as him.
0: And as capable.
3: And yeah. as capable. And and you Nick, you, you brought this up. They don't have the The Room sex scene together. Mm-hmm. Remo- they remove don't.
1: He goes off and saves that person. Because
3: he's not yet able to to break down that wall of isolation. He's still dealing with that. Yeah. So he gets to that point where he's cu- getting ready to come out of his shell. And then he loses that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, th- I felt like the his repeated uh, utterance of, I'm not the bad guy, it hits a lot harder in this yeah. movie. like Because you can definitely see how he would be the bad guy in the director's yeah. cut. Whereas that's less obvious in... Uh, in the, I mean, and the espe- theatrical version. especially
3: with, I'm, I'm sorry, es- especially without the sex scene because he goes immediately from leaving Electra on the rooftop to beating up that guy in front of the guy's kid. So what's going yeah. on in his head then is he's abandoned a human connection to beat up a man in front of his child.
0: That's <laughs> who why that, done that
3: I'm not yeah. a bad guy moment feels so strong to him. Right. And again, all of it yeah. completely lost in the theatrical cut and they then have a they then have a
1: shot after that which maybe was in the theatrical cut is this the, the after he says that to the kid there's then a shot where he's like on a rooftop being all broody and he says it again was that yes. in the uh, theatrical yes, version or not it was it was okay there there were a, there were a lot of things where it was like short little sc- scenes of like 5 seconds where I was like was that in the original <laughs> or not just cuz i couldn't remember them
0: The word I think okay. the use of the I, word original um, is really throwing me off because I am thinking of theat- the director's yeah, cut this, as the original but so yeah okay let's do that
2: I, I would also okay. add that having this this plot where he's he's defending the innocent person i think it also helps add two thing other things that we haven't talked about the first is it, it reinforces the idea that he's also a defender of the innocent mm-hmm. like you know he isn't just vengeance he is yep. you know you you have you did no wrong therefore I am going to defend you but the other thing it does is that it gives him it gives him one of the things we talked about is that he really didn't seem to have much of a goal in the first in the theatrical cut. Uh-huh. And in the director's cut, obviously mm-hmm. he also has the, the emotional journey. But he also has a, an active, ongoing thing he's trying to do. He's trying to save this man. So yeah. even when we see him, it's not he doesn't feel aimless. He's got something he's actively pursuing and working towards. And that helps us give a sense of momentum yeah. to the film that it didn't really have in the director's cut, it was just sort of wandering. Now we're we're working on a thing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to see other things that I've got in my notes. I I, I also thought that. Having One of the things that gets established early about Electra here, in addition to her being protected by these bodyguards and and not really wanting that, is that she saw her mother die in front of her when she was five years old. She saw that happen. So we establish her kind of being damaged and also having that trouble connecting. When her father dies, then, it makes more sense to me that—it makes more sense why she is a dick to Matt at that point. Yeah, yeah. Because she, she, the lesson that she has just learned is. Don't get no close. No matter to how them. she's. Yeah, don't get close to people. She. she Yeah, that makes sense. in the theatrical cup because we don't have that crucial piece of context. We don't know anything about her background. She's just kind of being a dick to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but he's also being a dick well, to Well, he her, usually he is. Lay off, yes. buddy.
2: Lay off, buddy. They're, they're both being dicks, but it's, it is a. The dickishness yes. comes on. Also, his dickishness has more of a context, too, because his from his perspective he's like you're the first thing i've ever had i can't let go of that so while they're both not necessarily behaving well the context given both by her mother's death and by his new emotional isolation makes their behavior in the graveyard make way more sense
3: yeah yeah um i i guess i've got a couple more things i want to cover on one side of the film and then we're going to go to another side of the film
2: intriguing
1: um, oh man, I got a side of the film I want to talk about, but so right. maybe a
3: third side of the film, um, or a possible. What, side? Shape so, is this film? I, I, I liked, I liked a couple things. Drunk. Um, toward Toward the end of the film,
1: that's the shape I was thinking of. <laughs> I know.
3: I, I <gasps> what shape am I thinking of now? Uh, uh,
1: Seventeen bears hounds. in a house. That's not a shape, uh, you idiot! It was a oh, pentagon. Sorry,
0: I, I heard you say. What am I thinking of now? <laughs> oh. So
3: who's a sheep um toward the end of the film the kingpin's been vanquished uh there is that scene where matt is back in the coffee shop with foggy foggy asks matt if he wants to talk about what he's gone through and matt again says no he's still still dealing with his emotional uh isolation and he leaves but instead of seeing a sad montage where matt wanders through the streets of new york looking lonely uh he goes back to the church and the, the priest mm-hmm. is there, and the priest kind of... Because church is just being let out. It's a Sunday, the priest nods at him and says, well, maybe we'll see you next week. And you, you get a sense at that point that, Matt, he's not quite opened up, but he's getting to the point where opening up is more of a possibility to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that that was nice.
2: Um, he also... The, the, they also have a scene where... Right after that, where Ben York more or less walks up to him and says, I know you're a daredevil and I'm going to print it, yeah. which then gives much a much more interesting credence to his what he said to, to Matt, both to Matt's monologue about, you know, people can surprise you and you can you, you can trust them. And the fact and, you know, Ben York kind of like salute to Matt right before he leaves, because it, that, for Matt, actually, that is that is a that is an evidence to Matt that you can trust some people because ben york is basically i have the most power i could crush you i have decided Uh not to you are safe so weirdly joe pantalioni becomes sort mm -hmm. of the savior for matt
3: so we've talked about this side of the film we've talked about how matt's journey is strengthened we've talked about how the plot is much stronger um but some weaknesses still remain so nick what did you think about the extra bullseye scenes (laughs)
1: That's exactly the <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about. Goddamn fucking extra bullseye scenes. All right. Well, the major one is Daredevil going through security at, I guess, Heathrow Airport. It's an airport bullseye somewhere going in Europe, some wherever he's flying to. Uh, and he spends the entire time sort of strutting around in his in his like black leather duster, uh, and he goes through security. He puts in uh, through the uh, scanner. Uh, like a toothpick and a pen, and that's, and like maybe one or two other things that he could use to throw at people to kill them because that's his stupid power. Uh, and he and he walks through, and a metal detector goes off, and the guy wands him over, and he gets to his mouth, and it starts beeping. And Bullseye reveals that for some reason he is smuggling a paperclip in his mouth through security, which, first of all, I'm not 100% certain that a paperclip would. Paperclip would even set off a metal detector. Second of all, I'm pretty sure you can take a paperclip on an airplane. I, I don't think you need to be all paneddestined about it. I don't think that that's it. what's
0: happening. I, think I don't that, think so either. Uh, I it's thought not, he was first regurgitating all, it's, it's it from, from his throat, and I assume that he always has it there, whether to pick handcuffs or to kill someone with. I actually, and, and for
3: for, for okay. reference, it's it's not. And he it's, then reveals that he has another I, I one. I don't I don't think it's a paperclip. I think it's a safety
0: pin.
1: Uh, I thought it was a paperclip.
0: I don't know. That was a safety I'm pretty sure it was a anyway. paperclip. Patrick, what were you trying well, to you say?
1: Well, he, he had already revealed that he uses paperclips because yeah. he killed the guy in the bar with right. paperclips. Uh, Regardless, uh, and for some reason, this guy revealing that he has a paperclip hide- hidden in his mouth sets off no no red flags for the security. Nobody says, "Oh, well, let's investigate
2: this guy." They just go, "Oh, he's got a paperclip
1: oh, in his mouth." Exactly All right, theory. he's one of those punks. And then in front of another security guard, he reveals that he had another I have, paperclip I have in about there. This.
2: I think I know why this scene was okay. in there, I, uh-huh. but here's why I don't think it needed to be. I think okay. the scene is in there because he also has... He actually is, he has actual weapons on him. hes He's got the belt buckle with the weapons on it. I think he walked through <laughs> with a paperclip in his mouth so that they'd see the paperclip and just assume he was fucking with them and not check the belt buckle. The reason I don't think it needs to be there was because... I don't know about any of you. I really wasn't wondering how bullseye got all his crap through the airport because... We do not care. It's, no. it's an irrelevant no. No. piece of information, and and, and his his yeah. his, his
3: very his defining characteristic, as we see with the peanuts and the paperclip, is yeah. anything in his hand can be a weapon. Right. So
0: why does he need to bring weapons with him? He doesn't. And again, I did not. Yeah, his bizarre shoddy can belt. I did not uh, believe that this was specifically a weapon for him. That I, I assumed that it was also for picking handcuffs or anything that he might. He, the point is that he's very handy. Like he can, mm. you know he can turn anything into a tool and that he just always had an emergency tool.
2: He can fix there a drain. He butter, can build a
0: bookshelf. I, I did not have any problem with this scene. Uh, and although I do find it rather surprising that Nick Bester noted fan of Colin Farrell as bullseye, <laughs> found an additional scene of bullseye to be irritating and useless.
1: I, oh my God. If there had been a way to cut, recut this movie. So bullseye was not in it, which I don't think I don't is know. possible, but if there were a way to do that, I would be so happy. I don't happy.
0: understand like, that at literally, all. If, literally, if
1: <laughs> Literally, if like he had just shown up as a guy who threw uh, Bull's uh, Daredevil's stick at uh, Electra's father and killed him and never showed up in any other scene, I would be happy. Well, what
0: this speaks to—I'm sorry, dude, go ahead. Uh, the, as I'm watching this superhero film, I have to say that— I found the things that Bullseye did to be significantly more compelling from like a superpower perspective than anything that Daredevil does. Like it's impressive what Daredevil does, but he's he's an acrobat, he's a blind man who can see. Okay, I feel like that's fairly simple. I've I've never seen another superhero that is is as absurdly like but almost humanly super powerful in this particular way. Like that is, is the right dude word. He does a lot of really impressive stuff, but so yeah. is Bullseye. Uh.
1: The, yeah. yeah. And I'm and I know almost nothing about Bullseye as a comic I've, character, and maybe yeah, I've I never seen his characterization else, there. So.
3: But you hate Colin Farrell, that's it, it
1: yeah. It, it's really Colin Farrell's approach to it. It's not anything about his powers. It's the sort of preening, peacocking. Uh, he made me well, miss he, bullshit that I just really, really find. And here's infectious. the
3: thing, and okay. that this is this is what I see as when we talk about what were the actual flaws in this film. You know, he, director's cut, theatrical cut, whatever. What were the real flaws? Um, the villain side of the equation in this film is still
2: incredibly weak which throughout. is weird it, yes. it's it, I, just to comment on that it's part of it's because they they feel oh, we have two villains I mean I guess you could count Wesley as a third villain but I don't nah. uh, you, have, he's a, you have he's a goon you have Kingpin and you have Bullseye the problem is that Kingpin and Bullseye first of all they don't get a lot of development Kingpin in particular nope. doesn't get doesn't get enough do. um <laughs>
3: Uh, although uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, my favorite addition to the theatrical cu- or to the director's cut of the film had to do with the Kingpin. It was in the Kingpin's first scene. Oh yes, when he we establish immediately that he is a physical threat. Mm-hmm. He throws away his cigar, yep. which is why he's lighting a cigar in the next scene. Yes, and he kills two of his henchmen. And the way that he kills them is he. Smacks one of them and kills them just with a punch, picks up the other one by his throat, and lets out the Michael Clark Duncaniest scream in all Michael <laughs> Clark Duncany screams history. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: Michael, and then snap the so
3: guy's much. neck. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is perfect. Peace? I had to pause the film for about two minutes because I was laughing so hard. And <laughs> that when I, I was yes. like, Re- the rewatch was worth it, it was perfect. Yep.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that scene is fantastic. And the, uh, the guy being strangled has a fantastic look on his face as well. That's a, that was also part of my, my Full enjoyment of I that scene.
0: I really enjoyed the fact that, that there wasn't that stupid cigar continuity error. <laughs> I
1: don't know why that, that seemed it. so
0: annoying to me in the theatrical cut, but it, uh, it really bothered me. And in this one, I was like, oh, yes, clearly it makes sense now. now. It
1: all—it all, all, right all makes sense.
2: But yeah. to to kind of get back to the point, yeah, yeah. the idea is that first of all, they're just very different. Kingpin is, aside from that one that one murder, he's very reserved, mm-hmm. and he's he's very calm. And you know, you want your bad guys to have some to have to diverge. You don't want them to be you don't you don't want them both running around cackling like lunatics, be, or yeah. both be super reserved because that just gets monotonous. But they're on such different planes; they're kind of in different movies. And I, I like Michael yes. Clark Duncan. I actually think he made a really good kingpin. And this is actually mm-hmm. for for trivia purposes. Uh, this is the pre Idris Elba as Heimdall uh, racist wine fest when he was cast as the kingpin.
3: Okay. Okay. So so uh, on, on that point, was this the first instance of a black actor being cast in a major role in a comic book film? Um, Besides as a white Blade? character. Besides Blade, yeah. <laughs> as, as a character who's originally yeah, white. Touche.
0: Um. As a character, was originally white.
3: It's the first one okay. I can think of. Well, Blade was originally white.
0: <laughs> Just for the like, record, he was absolutely was not correct. He was definitively okay. not. Yeah. He was, I, he was, I don't know as much about the exactly origins, but I always got the impression it, it, that he was yeah, he, one of the he, first he badass quote, black like, superheroes. Black. Who, yeah.
2: Yeah. He, I mean, a, he, he was. He had a oh, power yeah. afro. He had Bronze Tiger and Luke Cage's power afro. They all awesome. three had the same power afro. Um...
1: I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine anything other than Wesley Snipes is, like, very intricately shaved. uh, I believe that he
3: he had an afro, he had a headband, he had sunglasses, and I believe a bright yellow loot cage shirt as well.
2: The Uh, 70s were an interesting time for comic books, and we could do a podcast on it ourselves. But, back to this being the kingpin being black. Um, Hold on a second, Patrick.
0: What you just said, uh, I want to relate back to uh, what Bester's problem with... uh, with bullseye, and I think you said it very well that they the two villains play off of each other very well because they they uh, are almost opposites. In that They're Kingpin is a different. sort of silent strength character, who mm-hmm. or silent strong character who clearly he grew up in Hell's Kitch- Kitchen, as it's established. I don't know then or later. He grew up uh, in the Bronx. No, he grew up in the Bronx. You the Bronx, wouldn't understand. Uh, he he grew up on the streets, and but he's risen to the top of the business world, obviously through. Strength and self control. Through uh, controlling so it, it the city's water supply, right? For him to, yeah. It, it makes sense for him <laughs> to really have both what of this those character did. traits. And it also makes sense to me for Bullseye to be so uh, preening as uh, I don't remember whether Patrick or Nick you put it that way, but I said uh, that. that if your power is that you have perfect aim, that is not something that you're going to use silently to, to rise to the top of anything. Like, that is something that. ...that you use to impress people and make them afraid. So it would make you cocky. Like, you would want to be showing that off all the time. Uh, so, okay.
1: it, He could use it to rise to the top <laughs> of the well, dark world. That's, that's actually Rule the point, is
0: that we meet... Rule it with an iron we meet fist! Him, it,
2: he's showing off in yeah. a bar. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So he's uh, I mean, I cocky skill versus silent strength, I guess. The, anyway, go on.
1: I mean, I think the idea that they play off of each other would work better if they had more than one scene together the fact the fact that they i mean patrick described them as being in different Mm -hmm. movies and it would not be hard to do that because they literally have the one scene together i think that's That's
3: true and i also think uh, again this film having a plot as opposed to the theatrical cut we see how these two characters connect into the plot but we don't really see how they connect into the internal journey that Matt's on. Let's take uh, The Dark Knight as a, a good example of this. One of the things that makes The Dark Knight a really effective movie is in addition to Batman being confronted with a strong external foe that he's having to overcome, that same foe and that same conflict is also challenging internal notions he has about himself and about the mission that he's on. So by overcoming that foe, it's not just a matter of clearing a hurdle. It's a matter of coming to a point where he understands in a better sense what his role in the world he's chosen is, which is why at the end of The Dark Knight, when he chooses to take on responsibility for Harvey Dent's crimes, for what the Joker pushed Harvey Dent to do... He is, in essence, saying this is the point to which I will go to defend this world that I'm trying to build. And at the beginning of the film, he didn't know that he was going to have to go that far. He thought his world was going to be easier. In Daredevil, the character's journey, his internal journey that we talked about to get to this point beyond his own emotional isolation has nothing to do with the conflict that he's dealing with with the Kingpin and Bullseye the, the, it's they are two separate conflicts each of which is individually valid but as they are not connected his victory yep. over the Kingpin at the end doesn't have the internal resonance that it should he's essentially just
1: on a revenge quest against Bullseye and Kingpin because they're the two people who are responsible for killing the two people he's ever exactly loved right. other than Foggy, oh, Foggy. <laughs>
3: Foggy, uh, I really liked that Foggy got more to do. Yeah, I yeah exactly. He's it
0: helps a lot. Very quickly turned off by John Favreau's hamming it up acting style, and in the uh, in the lawyering scene when he repeatedly tells the jury that this that the lawyer is blind, he says it twice in a row. He's blind, everyone. You know, he's he's blind. just encapsulated everything that drives me nuts about John Favreau that comes through very clearly in the Iron Man films, where I, I found myself screaming at the TV, stop putting yourself in your own movies. But... For the record, John Favreau, I love you, please hire me. <laughs> it is not, it is not a, a criticism of... No, it's a criticism of him. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> a criticism of him. I'm sure many I, I, people I, like, I like it, I just don't take to it.
3: Yeah, I, I, I like it, because I, I think Isn't it... A... it... His scenes with Affleck in this have a different rhythm to them, mm-hmm. but I think really helps humanize what from Affleck is an otherwise another yeah, not, not bad. That's films, about but a the point, stiff because conflict. I
0: like the relationship that the two of them have. I just didn't mm-hmm. like... that It seemed unrealistic for any human to say it multiple times, as if the jury would not understand, or not have understood already, that he's clearly blind.
3: Here's one thing about Bullseye, and this may have been in the theatrical cut, but I didn't notice it in the theatrical cut. When he does kill Electra, and runs her through, and he's holding her there on the yes. side, before he throws her away in the director's cut, he kisses her.
1: Like gives her this really yes, creepy. That's not, in the, not kiss. in the theatrical cut. It's creepy and as I, shit. I'm like, th- that that
3: was uh, as as goofy and as terrible as Colin Farrell is as Bullseye throughout the film. That was actually a moment that I thought worked really well for him because it made me hate him as a character, not just as a performer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that was a. Diff- th- there, there's a bunch of differences in that fight. I mean, for one thing, we see a lot more of the of the side going into mm-hmm. her. And in, in the theatrical cut, like it's a shot of the back yeah. of her bustier yeah. get, getting a spike through. But this time, we actually like run through and then very, very creepy yeah. ki- kissing what will soon be right. a corpse. But apparently not.
2: Although I have You'll not see. watched Electra, You'll I don't know see. if Electra ever goes oh, we'll into. Okay, we'll all right. There.
0: Good. Does she have a Lazarus pit?
2: You'll see. Oh, that
0: would
3: be so nice. <laughs> the, the um, you know, the, the villain side of the equation is still weak. Um, we still have. Should have brought in the stilt, stilt man, man or Caruthers. the owl. The owl. Owl Carruthers. Stilt man Carruthers. Stilt man Carruthers. Yeah. Um. I also think that. <sighs> That's the right way to phrase this.
0: I'm the scamp man. <laughs> calling out to scatman's world
1: <laughs> Wait, we are on totally the wrong Scatman right now <laughs> um,
0: all scatmans are one aspect of or aspects of the one true scatman
3: every time I'm getting ready to get my train of thought back in order you can start talking about the scat man
1: <laughs> while we're on the subject of scat man you keep saying Curruthers. isn't it cross right
3: two
0: syllables right. Uh, it's like cockroach right, you, you just... know it's it's better when there's an extra syllable. Maybe I don't know. Okay, Chill just grin. so we
1: can just so we can stay on the subject of Scatman's as long as possible. Scatman, scat. excuse me.
2: Um. Seriously, next topic. So, so yeah, I, I, I think
3: I, I think that the the villain side of the equation is still weak. I think the plot is okay. There's a stronger thematic undercurrent through the film. It, it, it's a better film. Yeah. It still got flaws, and I, I was wondering if before we started talking about the hypothetical, like what if scenario, um, was there anything else in this cut of the film that still bothered you or that you found particularly egregious that we haven't already talked about?
1: Um, like additions or just things for, that we saw in the theater? I mean, cut e- that are e- as either th- either or... things
3: that were added that bugged you. Or things that were in the theatrical cut that weren't fixed
2: by the director's cut. That, that were still clearly
3: part of the director's original vision, I, but were just I mean, bad. you
2: could talk about the yeah. CGI, but I, that's also just a question of both time, money, and the time yeah. that they were in. So it's kind the of The
3: Evanescence, hard. Affleck's yeah. highlights, yeah. all those things you loved, Patrick.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. no, I mean, we got, I mean, the, the music video was definitely the thing that I was thinking of as being sort of the, uh, and that goddamn stupid uh organ fight.
0: <laughs> I admit at at uh by the time we reached the organ fight in the film, I had almost completely stopped watching. I think I was brushing my teeth preparing to go do something else while the film was playing. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have the urge to turn it off. I just wasn't as pulled into it. You just zoned out a
3: little.
1: Well I think I think at that point most of the substantial changes other than like in the last five minutes. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there aren't okay. that many. I think there's like some additional like cuts in the fight with uh Fight with Kingpin the with and Europe maybe a th- end, couple small changes.
2: One thing that I did yeah. notice between the two cuts um, is that the the scene is that I don't know what the exact timeline on when the reshoot started happening or when they got if they got the order to change things. But it, the some of this re, the, some of the reshoot scenes, the scenes that co- directly contradicted each other, they looked different. Like they looked like they were shot mm-hmm. in different. Light and the the, the one thing that very specifically makes me think of that is um, it's the scene where uh, Foggy figures out it's Wesley. That scene is shot very chiaroscuro, very harsh lights. It's very noir, uh, mm-hmm. which is traditionally what Daredevil has always been said in. It, ever since Frank Miller took over the character in the late '70s, early '80s, yep. and compare that to some of the way the other scenes get shot, where they're they're not. It's not exactly that they're not as stylized, but they are just they just look different. The lighting is is a different style of lighting. I,
1: yeah, I mean, the one that...
2: You, you finish up.
1: I mean, the one that I'm thinking of is uh, the one where uh, Ben Urich essentially gives the info dump to uh, Daredevil in the theatrical cut. Like, that seems like a it's like a weirdly sunny scene just because the lighting is so very different from a lot well, of I the movies. I think movie. there's
3: that one, and then there's also the the church scenes. I mean, throughout the the director's cut, including the added scene what is inside the church has a very unified aesthetic it's very old world very european very very catholic mm. um and then the scene that is added in the theatrical cut is that confessional scene where matt is mm-hmm. sitting inside the confessional talking to the priest
2: which
3: and that that is the brightest sunniest confessional scene i have ever seen in my life <laughs> like it's a, it's an outdoor confessional well especially
2: concerned that they yeah. If they did reshoots, they probably just shot that scene by seeing those two actors down with a wall in between them.
3: All right, the uh, get get yeah. us get us the wall, prop. Get, get me a screen! Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Dude, what do you, what do you think? Was, was there anything else that still bothered you, or anything that was added that bothered you?
0: Um, sorry, I was distracted. Uh, Patrick, you used the word chiaroscuro, chiaroscuro that yes. I had only heard in the one context before as, as the name of the uh, vertigo comic book series uh, detail about the life <laughs> of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I did not know that it was a, a specific painting style, so I was looking that up while you guys were talking uh, Sorry I'm stu- I'm stunting uh, my film degree. Uh, no, no it's fine I just yeah film I, I wanted to uh, explain why I had not collected thoughts but also explain what the word meant in case there were any there was anyone else out there who had not heard it before. Um, apparently it's it's the contrast of strong lights and strong darks. Mm-hmm. Uh, lighting wise is that did I get that correct that's correct okay. most yep. notably used in film and noir movies okay uh, yeah the wikipedia article mostly references painting it seems but uh, uh, yeah. in the film context let's see other specific things part, that too. I thought uh, should have been changed or had not been were changed that I didn't like mm-hmm. uh, I guess by yeah by the probably midway through the second act or certainly by the beginning of the third act I was paying less attention than I had been uh, and so I didn't note anything at the end, uh, although I was very bothered by the the organ fight in the theatrical cut. But I would bet that if I watched it entirely in context in the director's cut, it wouldn't bother me as much because up to that point, the, the film had kind of earned my goodwill in the director's cut. I, mm-hmm. I felt like I was more capable of going with it, where by that point in the theatrical cut – I wanted it to go in the trash can, <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like I've been repeating that same sentiment. Uh, but I I can't under, overstate the the irritation that I felt at that god awful theatrical cut and how its com- complete absence in this version uh, made this feel like a fundamentally different film.
3: There so is... so you, you you mentioned you mentioned one thing. Um, you mentioned the act break. One of the things that struck me about the director's cut is I thought there were very clearly delineated first, second, and third acts mm-hmm. in this film.
0: Okay, we
3: talked in the theatrical cut about how the first act seemed to drag forever. Yeah,
0: there was no exposition.
3: And then the sec-
1: yeah, it's like fifteen yeah. minutes or something. And then like. the,
3: the third act was like fifteen minutes. Well, um, in, in this, there's a very clear break. The first act ends after the uh, club fight, after he sees Lisa Tazio's death, and after he shuts himself in the isolation chamber. Act 2 begins in the next scene, where he's in the coffee shop and meets Electra. Act 2 ends when Electra's father gets killed, and he goes back to uh, his apartment and is trashing it. Act 3 begins in the next scene. Daredevil smash! Yeah, pretty much. The, the, the act structure makes much more sense. The acts are like... 35 minutes, 45 minutes, 30 minutes in this one. It's it's much more reasonably paced. And it just, it adds to that sense of the film being more coherent.
2: And I think that to kind of build off something that Dude said was that, like we said, the, a lot of the film's flaws are still there, but, and this is one of the interesting things about a lot of movies, is that when you have a more coherent whole, you're always, you, you almost seem more willing to kind of let those flaws slide because instead of instead of yeah. just kind of things that uh, I wish they hadn't done that as opposed to just building upon annoyance upon annoyance and it's just sort of a crescendo at that point. So for the example the the organ scene, which I don't think anyone is going to argue is the best. <laughs> movie.
3: So, no it's it's still not good.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, when you get to it in theatrical As
1: the contrarian I will argue that I love it.
2: <laughs> Only Never Nick the contrary change. himself. Never
3: change. <laughs>
2: But You would argue, if,
3: if you were the only person in a room, you would argue with yourself. I will
1: kill
2: whoever says that they don't <laughs> what, like
3: the
1: organ scene. Flashback to five minutes if, ago. What
0: if Nick is the only person in the room while Daredevil and, and uh, Bullseye are fighting on top of an organ in the same room?
3: I think we call that cognitive dissonance. Yes.
0: Oh. What Ooh. if I'm the only one in the room right now? There.
2: That's what we call schizophrenia. What if you're all in my mind? <laughs> the point being... That.
1: God, I hope this really exists, because this would be a really sad form of schizophrenia <laughs> to be pretending to record a podcast with people who don't exist about movies I don't
0: like. What a great podcast that would make. No, wait. It's like Garfield without Garfield. Yeah. But a podcast. Podcast without podcast. <laughs> Podcasting without Nick, with your host, Nick. <laughs> and the social guests, Nick and Nick. Okay. Uh,
3: Nick has an oddly specific right. form of schizophrenia.
0: <laughs> I, I had a, uh, a a film kind of substance question for you guys. What? I find it much easier. I mean, I guess this is the point of the act structure. But that's my question: is I find it easier to follow a film when there is a sharply delineated act structure. But I also, I I don't know why that is. Is it just because that's what I'm used to? Is there something fundamental about a I three could, act structure or I a could four tell act structure? You? That, Let me, it's a good that, question. hold on.
2: Uh, Okay, I Okay, we'll call the question ended there. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I can tell you what I got taught in film school, but you know, you can kind of take that as a grain of salt whether or not. Okay. Uh, the what I was taught is this: screenwriting. Structure is important. Uh you know, eventually we'll have Lillian on and she will tell you I am a structure nut. I am But she is also too. Like we we spent the last couple of weeks kind of obsessively checking out page counts on our on the TV episode we're working on. And the three act structure is the oldest structure, just because when you get down to it, the three act structure is beginning, middle, end, you know, which is kind of as about as, you know basic as it okay. gets. Now, I've certainly heard other theories. I've certainly seen movies that have a four act structure, where the middle split like to Like Spider-Man. Two. Like Spider-Man. There's five act structures. TV these days is working off of a six act structure. I think the important part isn't necessarily that you have that clean three act structure, rather that you have a clear structure. Because if you don't have a clear structure, there's no skeleton to the movie. And because I want to bring this back to the actual topic at hand, take a look at the theatrical cut. It does not have any sense of clear structure. It doesn't have a backbone in the form of a plot. It doesn't. It, it's all over the place. So you, you don't feel like you know where you're going. When you have a structure, any structure, you know, and I'm not saying there are bad structures because there are. It helps you follow. What's going on, and you don't feel lost. You trust that the writer knows what they're talking about. You you say to the writer, "Okay, I trust you to take me on whatever journey this is. Let's see what happens."
0: Mm-hmm. I guess the the second part of my question was was more that uh, having a structure is. Uh, I would how do I put this? Uh, is it better to? have your structure be clear or kind of disguise your structure within... I don't know how to put this from from a writing standpoint. Because uh, it's something that I've been thinking about with uh, screenplays that have been kicking around in my head. Uh, how clear do you want it to, the, to be to the audience that this is the end of Act 1 and this is the beginning of Act 2? Or should they mm-hmm. be so caught up in the story that they never even think about it? Because the the, the intricacies sort of blend the two acts, so it seems... A natural progression of individual scenes, rather than like, oh, this first part of the mo- the journey is over, and now we're moving on to in a different direction completely.
2: I, I, before we go any further, I can I can talk about that. Okay. Uh, I want to ask our ringleader, Stefan, Do we want to wait to talk about that because we are going to get very far from talking about Daredevil if we do? Okay, I mean we can wait until the end. I, after I, I, we've yeah, I was up gonna
3: the... say if 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 you can like keep this. Quickly on 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 point, like keep it under a couple minutes. Uh, I, I would say, as an addendum, before and Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong. I think to some extent it, it depends on the kind of audience you're trying to reach and the kind of story you're trying to tell. The most, and we've talked about this before, the strongest example of a very clearly delineated act structure I've ever seen in film is True Lies. True Lies. <laughs> I knew you were say that. <laughs> True Lies. <laughs> yes, which is a four act structure. Yep. With a
1: special bonus act. Um, I am so glad that I was not the only one going, you know what, it has a really clear st- act structure. True Lies. Yeah, I think that
0: was actually, you guys discussing the act structure in True Lies was one of the first instances, uh, uh, and I have not seen the film. I wasn't watching it with you when you pointed this out. I mean, I've seen the film a long time ago. I haven't seen it oh, okay. since okay. we had this conversation, is the end of that sentence. Um, was one of the first instances where I heard it discussed in a way that was like, a specific example and not just someone talking about having an act structure. Uh, so it, mm-hmm. it was kind of one of the earliest times that I really started thinking about it in a concrete
2: way. I'm going to use a metaphor that I used when I was talking to my stepfather. My stepfather's an engineer, As a, my mm-hmm. parents were scientists and engineers, as a side effect I use a lot of this terminology. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're building something. You need those key structural points that need to be there. Without mm-hmm. it, the the building or bridge or what have you is going to collapse. Mm-hmm and it will be useless, people yep. might die, and we'll all be sad. Every stone in the arch is important before right. you get to the keystone. But mm-hmm. when you're, most of the time, a lot of houses, some, some buildings, you don't need to hide the rivets. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In a warehouse, no one cares. Yeah. But mm-hmm. in this fine apartment building that I'm in, they don't want the tenants to see the rivets because yeah. we won't want to live in a house placed with rivets. So depending on the movie, the point is they need to be there. I need these rivets or this ceiling is going to fall down on my head. Okay. But depending on what kind of building it is, you're going to want to cover those rivets up somehow.
0: That makes sense. If you're writing a morality play where you want the audience to come out of the film knowing, having an impression about the world, like this thing that people do every day is distinctly bad and we should all stop it as a society, you're going to create a completely different story than, I was been thinking about the nature of good and evil and here are different sides of a thing that you can make decisions about. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I mean something, and something like *True Lies* to go back to our <laughs> uh, our example there. I mean that's a that is a very sort of postmodern, very self-aware movie. So the fact that it has a very uh, very self-evident act structure, I think helps support that because it's it's very obvious that it's a constructed movie. There's not necessarily that sort of like, you never believe that this is totally
0: yeah perfect. real. I, I think so perfect. One of
1: the th- what. There's a critical distance between you and True Lies.
0: One of my favorite things about True Lies, actually, is the title. Because it, it seems so sort of self-referential that any film that you make is obvious. Everything in it is going to be lies. Uh, and I guess I hadn't thought about it any farther than that. Or I lost my train of thought because I just got a new chat message. But... uh um, so did
3: I. It's Patrick saying that we're off topic <laughs> Are these Sorry, lies um, lies well, I, or yes. are these lies true lies We're not, lies? To we're not oh, off topic, we're <laughs> on true lies So, so welcome <laughs> listeners to uh, <laughs> to the James Cameron cast <laughs> We're going to talk about
1: like, Seriously we need to start a podcast where we just talk about
0: true lies yeah. It's, uh, it's like Macbeth, it can be the cut the so podcast. many different ways we will, um, we will be analyzing who lies more and whose lies are more idea, true Stephen. Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jamie Lee Curtis's Next week we'll be discussing is Jamie Lee Curtis really in this film.
3: <laughs> to, to to bring bring it back on point, um act structure established. Th- thinking about the the hypothetical of this film, it's too it's too it's two, th- <laughs> really two thousand three. Uh Spider Man is a mega hit in the previous year. Daredevil gets butchered in the editing room, there are reshoots, we get the P G thirteen theatrical cut. That is not good uh what happens if same context spider-man's a mega hit this the director's cut is the film that gets released into theaters with an r rating what's the reaction
2: i think in terms of the the future i don't think it's going to change that much because with an r rating it's going to be a bit of a blip like you know it's it's a because Mm -hmm. daredevil is such a darker hero it's really not going to affect that much. I mean, this this film's financial problems really did nothing to affect, you know, the the, the course of things. Spider-Man Two and, still and, came
3: and out. again, again, again. Let, let's let's be perfectly clear. Daredevil made a profit of about a hundred million dollars.
2: It, it, it was not a failure. It was
3: not a mega hit. Right. But it wasn't a failure.
2: Um I I wonder. I don't know. Like that's a really hard thing to say. I. It makes me wonder if we would be okay. If we'd have be, if we'd have be in a world where we would be more okay with much darker superheroes, because this cut of Daredevil is maybe the darkest superhero movie Marvel has put out. It's the only one with Punisher aside, yeah. It's, it's darker than a lot of DC comics. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that compares to it in darkness is Constantine, and Constantine still had a PG-13 rating. Punisher. 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 Thank you. Actually, you're right. I'll, yeah. I'll give you Punisher. Yeah. Um, huh. You know, but I wonder if that would have affected how things were going thus far in terms of just sort of the the '90s mar- what we what we used to be called the Vertigo and Marvel Ma- uh, Marvel Max imprints. You know, mm-hmm. you know, going going down the, the road of Darky McDarkson.
0: I guess it's okay. it's a hard question for me to really contemplate because, like, I haven't seen either cut of Elektra, and I would think of that as being the the film that would be most affected by you know whichever version of this film the world had seen, uh, but uh, do you guys not consider like the Batman films to be very dark? I think of the, dark in a Christopher Nolan's way. Batman trilogy as being very yeah. dark.
3: I, I think they're, they're they're dark in terms of their subject matter. They're dark in terms of a lot of the themes they play to. But and the, physically, or lighting-wise. Yeah, <laughs> so the, 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 the way that this cut of Daredevil feels, it doesn't just feel dark, it feels seedy. Yeah, I mean the the driving element of the film is whether, if we're talking about plot, is did this drug addict murder this prostitute?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And it, it, if he, you know, is he worth defending? Uh, yes, I feel like that's a crucial, crucial moral question about the, or, you know, that this film tries I, to I answer. I
2: almost wonder if for this movie to really be what we'd want it to be, for it to reach its highest levels, it would have had to have gone even seedier. Like, oh, yeah. like Daredevil, especially Frank Miller's Daredevil, is, I think as we talked about in the theatrical cut version, a product of 1970s New York. Mm-hmm. And if they had, for the movie to be kind of really encapsulate that sort of Frank Miller Sin City style, it needed to kind of go full throttle and embrace the 1970s New York. Maybe not all the way out to the I, other I end really... of Frank Miller, but...
3: I really like... Uh the suggestion that Nick had during the last uh, podcast that the film would have been stronger if uh, Matt Murdock had become one of Wilson Fisk's lawyers.
1: Yes, I think
3: that... Not necessarily had become, but already was. And then had had to deal with... uh, Because, again, that plays to... If Fisk is a father figure for him in the context of the film given what oh. we know about his emotional solitude, that plays to the idea of, okay, he, that's another human connection that he's going to have to lose, and will he give that up? Then the conflict, the external conflict and the internal conflict are in alignment.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, and you could, have, you could have him be, like, the corporate sellout lawyer, and maybe Foggy is, like, a down-on-his-luck defense attorney, and they, like, end up together
0: in the end. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh. You could, you could have, there's all kinds of ways what you could if, do it. Uh, and I'm sorry, I did not get a chance to listen to uh, the rest of the podcast from last time that I, I didn't hear, Bing. so I didn't hear this this theory. But what if uh, ah. Matt Murdock had become Wilson Fisk's lawyer in basically the same plot as this film, or the same world, mm-hmm. world structure, but uh, had become Wilson Fisk's lawyer in one instance where he happened to have not committed a crime. And so when he met him, His first impression Mm -hmm. was that he was an honest man because Mm -hmm. all of those, uh, the questions that he was being asked, he didn't have to lie about. Uh, and, yeah, Yeah, that uh, could be. Matt Murdock could have existed as a relatively famous and very successful lawyer, but who notably only defended the innocent and Wilson Fisk could have sought him out in this instance. Uh, uh, you
1: know. I think
3: that would have worked.
1: I think, I, I think there's a lot of ways Essentially, essentially, just something that gives you more of a connection between Wilson mm-hmm. Fisk and uh, Matt Murdock, more than just, yeah, he killed his father like 20 years oh, yeah. ago. Uh, just so ha- have the habit, ha- having them have some sort of relationship, and it doesn't necessarily have to be paternal, but I think just in terms of sort of cliched plot well, development, I think of trust. it works well. followed the betrayal, um, I think. The, is- yeah, but I mean, because they, they have. Other other than, like, the uh, water fight at the very end, they meet once for, like, ten seconds.
2: Your hero and your villain need to talk to each other at some point, is kind of how I think of it. Um, Yeah.
1: And they probably exchange less than 50 words to each other Mm -hmm. the entire time, because there's not that much talking when they first meet, and there's not that much talking in the water fight, either.
2: You know, I'm thinking, um, you know, one thing we always tend to ask, and it's one thing we didn't ask in the theatrical cut, because I think we were a little overloaded from... The theatrical cuts, How the theatrical terrible ones. it was! We um, were emotionally, we always talk about physically exhausted. How is it. this? A, how does this work as an adaptation? Mm. And we, we didn't really talk a bit about that. I think I think we could say tonally, the director's cut captures the Daredevil tone a lot better than the theatrical cut, and it touches a mm. lot of what what makes Matt Murdock's um, sort of internal pain so strong. It, it, but here's the interesting thing: is that this this particular movie is capturing only one specific facet of Daredevil. That's the Frank Miller Daredevil. Yeah. There's been a lot of other mm-hmm. things that have been done with Daredevil since then. And right now, Aren't they cho- they choose to focus on Frank, which is why he's in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And you can understand why. Frank basically brought Daredevil back to life, back before mm-hmm. he went Looney Tunes. And it is that makes it kind of interesting because they, they focus that much on the way Frank Miller brought daredevil back and brought electra into it and brought bullseye into it well not so much bullseye they don't really talk that much about what he did with wilson fisk in in that comic book run Uh because in frank miller's comic book run he's the one that made fisk daredevil's arch nemesis before that he had just been a low-level spider-man bad guy Uh and he gave fisk a backstory a tragic fascinating backstory and all sorts of interesting parallels between his nemesis and they didn't have to go into that there. You know, maybe they felt well, they that, didn't have
3: that, time. That again, that again.
1: Pl- he grew up in the Bronx, Leslie. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> that, that again. That's his backstory. That
3: again plays to, uh, to that idea that the villain side of the card here is woefully underdeveloped. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. um, Yeah. we know nothing about Bullseye. He's a cocky guy who has perfect aim. We don't there, know why uh, or wh- how he discovered this or what else he could do with it other than kill racist old ladies with peanuts. There's a trope
3: in, uh, in professional wrestling. Uh, of the foreign heel, and uh, <laughs> in Futurama, they capture it perfectly in the episode yeah. where Bender wrestles, and one of his foes is the foreign. I'm, the <laughs> I'm not from around here. <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's you,
1: look at how yours. crazy my passport <laughs> yeah, is. You
3: you have uh, you have your hero, whoever you want to be. You know, uh, Hulk Hogan or uh, or Bret Hart, or your your stand up guy, who you feel like you you know pretty well what that guy stands for, and you like him. And then after you run through the, uh, the good villains you have, you've still got to have a match for the next pay-per-view. And so you bring in the foreign heel, who is generally a very large guy, power wrestler from another country. And the reason you're supposed to dislike him is he's not from around here. Yes. The most successful example of this would probably have been Yokozuna. Even that's a pretty weak example. So you, you bring in the. Uh, that, that's what I feel like Bullseye and Kingpin are here. Here's, they're the foreign
2: hills. They're underdeveloped,
3: they're big, they're threatening, but they don't mean anything.
2: Here's a weird thing, though, is that, uh, for, in, for, for the record, in the comics, Bullseye is American. But uh-huh. Bullseye is very foreign in this. Kingpin is less so. But Bullseye yeah. is pretty much defined by his Irishness. But well, that's what Matt is. Matt I is an that Irish he was, guy.
0: Top of the morning I thought bullseye you. was defined by his aim. His aim I thought he was
3: defined by his poor power. performance.
1: <laughs> I thought he was defined by his bullseye. Mm. Eh? The weird scarification or tattoo or whatever uh, it is he has uh, on his just PM to head. just
0: to jump back and uh, digress again for a second, Stefan. What is the what is the name of that horrible uh, uh, Middle Eastern stereotype uh, heel? Who's doesn't he have like, like sand in his name or?
3: Oh uh, uh, well, the, the, there's the, uh, the, the, the the iconic. Yeah, the Iron Sheik, the it, the Iron the Sheik is the one Sheik. I was looking for. Yeah. Thank you. There's also the Sheik. Um, and it's it's again it's a trope. There's the Sheik. There's the yep. Iron Sheik. There's Sabu. There there's. Okay, that's the Quick only blog.
2: one. I've The heard Iron before. Sheik's Twitter feed yeah. is yeah. the yeah. greatest there's thing ever, and you should all. The read Iron all Sheik's them. Twitter feed is pretty incredible.
0: <laughs> I have a question about uh, the the good guys though. As a kid, Sergeant Slaughter was on GI Joe, but he was also a wrestler, right? Yes. And it, was, he a, was he a good guy in wrestling? So,
3: okay, so originally he was kind of a vicious heel, like he, he was a bad guy. Then okay. he became a, a patriot and was a okay. good guy. Then, this is the greatest wrestling twist in history. <laughs> During the first Gulf War, oh God. Sergeant Slaughter decided that America had gotten weak. So Slaughter's character became that of an Iraqi sympathizer. <laughs> hmm. Um, who would come to the ring mm-hmm. dressed in an Iraqi
0: military uniform
3: with the Iron Sheik as his manager, going by the name Colonel Mustafa
0: at that point. So he's definitely a heel is what you're saying. He became He that. was a heel at okay. this
3: point. And th- they would do like things where uh, he there were Photoshops of him and Saddam Hussein at parades, like okay. they, they went really over the top. Wow! With it. Wow. Until until the ultra American Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. uh, beat beat him at WrestleMania, at which point he became a, a beloved babyface again. Okay, but it's, uh, that 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 I, that's a, a perfect example <laughs> of the foreign heel syndrome. Why do we hate Sergeant Slaughter, this legend that
0: we've loved from now on? Because he's decided he's not from around here. I always found him confusing because. I knew nothing about wrestling. I I knew a decent amount about GI Joe, but he was clearly an American figure on GI Joe. But his name was Sergeant Slaughter, which is not a hero's name. That is, to me, very clearly a villain's name because the only thing that he cares about is slaughtering people or we possibly are, animals. Still, we are not good.
2: Super This episode. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: This is this way is all, all relevant. Topic. Also, Slaughter's a fair. Also, Slaughter's a fairly normal. Name just normal name. People have the name Slaughter, but
0: like it's it when when you're creating a character whose name is going to have a tonal or moral quality, I feel like Slaughter, like Bullseye. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Uh. uh, (laughs) Anyway, I like the digressions when I listen to podcasts. I will take. See, I'm not know. a big
3: fan of digressions, and I want to tell you why in a 37 point. Document. <laughs> um,
1: no, no. The, the, I'm pretty sure with these digressions, we're go, this is going to be a longer episode than yes. the first. Yes, it, it be and This was this intended is to be a short with one.
0: More to discuss.
3: The um, the 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 big point that I was like, getting at with the foreign heel thing mm-hmm. is um, the foreign heel syndrome re- rears its ugly head. When you have a hero that you love, or at least know about and care about, mm-hmm. and a villain or villains that were clearly hot shotted in to fill a space and don't have an equal amount of development,
0: but I didn't, I didn't feel that uh, Bullseye's Irishness or his foreign, no, 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 no. was I, like I'm one not, of his defining characteristics.
3: I'm not, I'm not saying at all that bullseye or the kingpin are identified as villains because they're foreign oh okay what i am saying is that like the foreign heel they are extremely underdeveloped relative to the hero against which they they have to match up i think i got confused
0: because i thought we were talking about that being one of his about his terrible about his irish accent (laughs) (laughs) i mean the irishness is
1: Pretty important is to it? the character. I mean, we do we do meet we we, we we he is introduced to us in the middle of a House of Pain rap song about not being a Uproxx <laughs> with the with the refrain of top of the morning. Top the morning. I, I didn't
2: I didn't even notice well, any I mean, of the lyrics really, in that I'm House of Pain song. The reason the character is Irish is because they cast Colin Farrell as, as yeah. An, I just assumed that Farrell had not mastered his American accent. I just assumed it was part of
0: you know the character's like. Uh, no, he's for, he's American in the, in no, the comics. No, I, uh, I, I mean uh, plays part of the the film version, uh, oh. part of that character's substance, and not you know mm-hmm. supposed to be like a reason that you should dislike him. No.
3: Did you just say that Bullseye played baseball?
2: It's a long story, and I'm not getting and into it. it. <laughs>
3: just, just top top out in double A. It's a long <laughs> story. <laughs> a and I'm not getting
2: into it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it. I mean, it seems like it would be. I would think be a, a perfect. He would be really yeah, good. At I mean, it. That yeah, yeah. would be a a, a natural field to him. to... For him to go into that is not super villainy. I mean,
1: not only not only does he have perfect uh-huh. aim, but he also is able to throw things remarkably he- fast. Because he hurls he hurls that uh Daredevil mm-hmm. stick, which is clearly not very aerodynamic, with enough force for for like a hundred meters away mm-hmm. to embed halfway into Let's that guy's in chest. He gives be up a lucrative, but gives a, a
3: lucrative a lucrative, baseball career <laughs> to become a supervillain. He's just like Fidel Castro.
2: <laughs> Let me put it this way. I could I'm not gonna explain on <laughs> the, the origins of Bullseye and Kingpin uh, from the Daredevil comics and why they are super interesting, but I do have to meet with Lillian in 45 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Um, okay. Well, uh, we but, won't go into that digression sure I,
2: why not, not relevant. I, 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 it I is relevant think that, but the, your digressions <laughs> ran us out of time
3: I do, I do think that uh, Patrick w- was on point when he said that in the grand scheme of comic book films this might not have changed much here, here, here is a question that I will pose though in the grand scheme of Ben Affleck films if this film had come out in its originally intended form would it have generated, at least not enough ill will to mm. protect his career from the one-two-three punch of Jersey Girl Geely and paycheck? I like paycheck. That sunk him um. for years. Like, would the Affleck collapse have been forestalled, and we would would we have been denied the athletic Renaissance? Do you guys That's... hear that buzzing?
1: I don't think so. I don't think. I I agree. I think it's. No, I think Geely still would have sunk I, him. I I I mean, I think for the I think for the very simple reason that being an R-rated movie. I don't think, especially in 2004, and even now I'm not sure that an R-rated superhero movie would have enough pull that it would really have much of an effect. I think like the core like comic book fan base would appreciate this movie a whole lot more, but I don't think that that would uh, translate to much more or maybe even less revenue for a director's cut release versus a theatrical cut release, and I doubt it would have affected sort of ben, ben Affleck overload that we had there in like two thousand three, two
0: thousand four. Oh, no. First of all, do you guys hear that buzzing? Is that just my headphones? That's just you. Just you. Okay. I really well, well, hope it's buzzing. not coming through on my mic. But um, I. This was the the only movie from that era that I saw with Ben Affleck that I really didn't like. I never saw Jer- Jersey Girl. I obviously didn't watch Geely. and I like Paycheck. So this, on my my personal experience, would have changed my opinion of uh, Ben Affleck if I had seen this rather than the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So, um, all that said, final thoughts on the director's cut of Daredevil?
0: Uh, the I can order. I feel like I can recommend it. Yeah. If you have or have not seen the theatrical cut, then I would say the director's cut is yeah. worth watching. Especially if you have seen the theatrical cut, because it will probably drastically change your impression of at least the uh, what's his name, Mark Steven Johnson, uh, yep. as a as a writer and director, mm-hmm. um, as well as hopefully, the, the actors in the film who who gave mostly, I would say, pretty good performances, but that the theatrical cut, like, really undermined uh, the work that they did. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Mm-hmm.
1: I would say, like, in some sort of contrafactual universe where the theatrical cut never happened and I had just seen this and I wasn't able to compare it to anything else, I can imagine myself liking this about as much as I like the first X-Men movie, or the first uh, Spider-Man movie. I think, they're, I think they're fairly comparable as superhero movies that I enjoyed watching at the time, but I've probably seen enough times that I don't need to see anymore. They're good, but not great. Uh, and there was one thing that I wanted to note. Uh, I noticed while I was watching this, and this has to also be true in the theatrical cut, during the final battle, the water fight, uh, when he's not wearing his mask with his, like, blind... Uh, blind contact lenses and sort of the way that the water makes his hair. I noticed that Ben Affleck looks a lot like Steven Dorff to blue cigarettes, smoke blue cigarettes,
3: blue electronic cigarettes.
1: But yes, he, yes, but he does look a lot like Paint Steven Dorff. There's something blue. about like his eyes and his hair that way. And just like his posture. I'm like, that looks a lot like I Steven Dorff. Hmm.
2: Patrick, yeah. um, I wish I could remember how I felt when I saw the director's cut. I definitely remember liking the director's cut a lot more when I saw it. And what is weird about this particular director's cut is that you know, back in the, uh, in the heyday of DVD home market, which is pretty much gone now, they would come out with director's cuts of everything. And now, That's how
3: you juice the cell of the film. Right. It, it was it was
2: just a way of making money. And most of the time, they really yeah. don't change anything. You get a few deleted scenes thrown in there. Sometimes you get deleted scenes that you look at and you think, oh, there's a reason that was deleted. Yep. And
1: That's often this, the case, I find, with the, special feature deleted yeah, scenes. The
2: only other film, and I hate to make this comparison, where the director's cut made such a substantial change is Blade Runner. Uh, <laughs> you know
0: I'm that's not, true i have yet to well, watch i mean, obviously the theatrical release of that i have i've seen the director and the, and the final yeah, cut don't
1: just don't
0: yeah, yeah. no yeah, it's i, mean, I want to watch it yeah. just you know to see yeah. what the differences are because i enjoy both the director's cut and the final cut uh, as as kind of substantially different films for all the minor
2: changes that there are or the right. few
0: minor changes.
2: I mean, yeah. you know, from, uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think, this is interesting. I think this the differences are interesting because it shows you just how much you can do with editing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, what about uh, Brazil? Brazil. Ah, that's uh, another, another good one. Brazil. Yeah. Brazil one. And, yeah, those are, the other, those are the only two I can think of. I, know, it's, this is a weird blip on the Marvel canon, you know, partially because this was the time, this is before Marvel themselves started to kind of unify and make yeah. their own stuff. I mean not that they're unif- particularly unified right now but even then they're more unified the, even then this, this I mean Avengers was pretty unified you no know, this but this stuff is at this point yeah. everything's all over the place yeah. and the Daredevil the theatrical cut you can just it, it, I don't begrudge studios existing and needing to make money cuz they pay my paychecks but you can really just see the the hand of we want to make it Spider-Man again
3: it's got to be another Spider-Man
2: right and yeah yeah, I don't know how I, I feel I, about that. I guess I get frustrated with the the
0: the studio attitude that I know nothing about, so I'm just gonna you know make <laughs> stuff up essentially and act like it's true. Uh, the the attitude about making money that requires all of the money to be made upfront with a film, as opposed to long term, because I feel like if you make a really quality film that is all around good writing, uh, good direction, like just a a, a thoroughly good film. And I'll use The Big Lebowski as an example because I feel like that everything, there's, there's it's unimpeachably good. Every moment of it and everything about the production is solid. Like, it clearly has, there was care taken with every aspect of it. Uh, And intention, I suppose. Uh, Like, that seems like it must make more money long-term than... Uh, even like the big summer blockbusters But I don't I know I think
3: that there there is there is a very long discussion That we could have here about The economics of mm-hmm. film One thing that I, I will say is I think the point you just made May have been truer in 2003 than it even is today Okay, Because in 2003 You did at least still have a thriving And growing home video market
0: through That's D&B. fair
3: Whereas today, that market is significantly less. Yeah, it broader. is declining.
0: But I would argue that it's still very relevant, at least, you know, in the, the middle of the country or, you know, not yeah. the the mo- highest echelons of uh, the economic um, yeah. brackets.
3: Again, I, I think that there's...
0: Although it, sh- it should be pointed out
1: that movies, a lot of these big movies are making most of their money yeah. abroad. Oh, that's,
2: Especially that's now, probably yeah, true. Well. Yeah. Again, yeah. we could have a long discussion, yeah. yeah. long this.
1: Yeah, this could go. Uh, I thought of another couple of director's cuts for that. One a possible one would be Apocalypse Now. Yeah, uh, yeah I had another which one, Which is too. another possibility. And and the director's cut of It's a Wonderful Life, where the town
0: rises up <laughs> and kills the <laughs> <Mr>. Potter.
1: <laughs> it's a very it's different cool one. movie. Let's uh,
0: get him. I own, but have never actually, have not gotten around to watching yet, the director's cut of Dark City. But I've heard that, that the the Dark absence City, of the yes. voiceover that yes, ruins Dark the City. plot at the beginning of the film is, that is a big uh, crucial. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah. It's just, it is, you know, even at its best, this is not a great cut. It's just, Mm -hmm. it is just interesting to look. I was, I was really excited to hear how you guys thought about it because like, you know, in much the same way, I think Nick was kind of worried that he, his hate wasn't justified. I liked the director's cut enough that I was kind of worried, you know, especially I didn't hate Daredevil as much as you guys did. (laughs) Um, I, I, thi- I was worried that I, I didn't. my memories were fogged and that this wasn't as substantially different and good as I remembered it having been. And I'm, it pleases me to know that I, I wasn't wrong. It actually is substantially different and notably better. And it
3: is.
1: We yeah, all support and,
2: and you.
3: That, You're right about everything. That was actually, when I was coming into this, just to wrap up, my, my concern was when I saw that there was a director's cut of Daredevil that was 30 minutes longer. That what we were going to get was a film, the quality of Daredevil, but 30 minutes longer. Like 30 more minutes yes. of that film would not have been a good thing. And I w- I was very pleased to see that it it was a fundamentally different film. Um, and uh, as Dude said, this is a film I would actually recommend people watch. Whether or not you have seen the theatrical cut... This is a, a, I wouldn't say a a great film. I might not even say a good film, but this is an okay film. There is value in this film. Mm -hmm. I will say that I did notice something this time around that I'm sure was in the theatrical cut, but that pleased me to no end every time I saw it. Um, So this goes back to Nick's favorite character, Bullseye. (laughs) Bullseye has this absurd duster that he wears.
1: Is this the detail that I think it's going to be? Uh, it's, might no, be but, uh,
3: it might not okay. be, but tell me what your detail is, and then I'll tell you the same thing. Well, the, maybe not his initial
1: duster, but the duster after he demands that he gets gets a costume. Yeah. Uh, it has no armpits.
3: <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> the armpits have been cut out <laughs> from it.
0: Like every so often, he'll he'll like raise his hands, and there's just a, a gap Did there. I that? It's very Did I strange. That? I my. my Go ahead, dude. Oh, I was just going to say that, it, I mean, the second time that I watched it, I was not paying super close attention, as I've said. But mm-hmm. uh, I remember in the first version, or uh, in the theatrical version of the film, the he demands a costume. And yet yeah. I don't ever remember noticing his costume no, he d- later he on. Get
2: one. That bugged he me. Get one. That's bugged me since I first saw this movie. No,
0: he's in a, he's in a slightly different leather okay. duster
1: because it's now like... It's, it's like crocodile skin and it's lace up in the back. Okay. And it doesn't have Yeah, hard I don't pits. remember that at all in the theatrical it's cut. And I didn't it. It's a very slightly in different. It's a very slightly different cutter.
3: The thing that I loved, and this does tie into the duster, is multiple times when Bullseye, he either says bullseye or he's lurking around in shadows or yep. he's, do, he's doing something. And his scene or his shot comes to an end. He exits the scene or shot, whipping his duster like a fucking Dracula <laughs> Like, whew. I mean, he's a very theatrical
1: figure. I mean, that's why he wants a yeah, costume. A so I'm not surprised, particularly, I mean, I've described him as preening and a, and a peacock. If you, if, you're, if you have that kind of personality and you have a giant coat, you're probably going to whip it about when you turn
0: around dramatically. <laughs> yeah, just, he
2: used, he used, the, thing just, he used sense. the thing as a weapon. It's just common sense. He used the thing as a weapon. Yeah. He well, good, her.
0: Uh, yeah, I had a couple more director's cuts to mention that I just got off of a list that I looked up online, but I don't want to make us go off topic again. So uh, I will mention okay. them after the recording
2: ends. Sounds good.
3: All right. So I think that we, uh, we have wrapped up. Uh, this will not be as long as our original Daredevil podcast. <laughs> it is still. By how much uh, less? Let's see. Uh, maybe by about 10 minutes.
0: Okay, then I'll, I'll quickly okay. mention one of the director's cuts because it is relevant. <laughs> um Superman 2. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, that is actually that, a very relevant one. That's a big
3: one. Yeah. one. That's a big one. Um yeah, the the Donner cut of that is a radically different and
0: much better movie. Yeah. Uh so not too much of a digression I hope. But no, yeah. that's actually very um, on topic.
3: Um yeah, and then uh the the director's cut of uh, of Breaking 2 Electric. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, has anyone seen the director's cut of Watchmen? No. Yes. Is it better? No, it's it
3: is better if you define better as more loyal to the source material. Okay. Well, well, right. let's let's phrase it differently. It's better if you define better as more of the source material.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. It's longer. All right. I mean that could be good, but I find I found most of my problems with uh, the theatrical cut of Watchmen to be uh, sort of substantial changes. Anyway. Um, anyway.
2: anyway.
3: Uh so yes, that that is our discussion of Daredevil. Our complete exhaustive <laughs> I think we we have spent more than uh I think more than three hours talking about various versions of Daredevil. Okay. So, so, three hours.
1: To be fair about a about a half hour of this was spent talking about Scatman, <laughs> or uh, true lies, or act structures, or uh, for. I would ask that you sure. please leave in so, the act
0: structure conversation because I feel like if I were listening to a podcast, it would be very relevant to you know the kind of thing I'm not. That I would I'm not. I'm not cutting anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Fair
3: enough. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: Well, in that case, let me say I'm the scat <laughs> And mouse. what
0: is what was my nickname, Batwing, or something? Uh, Blackwing. Blackwing. That's Blackwing. It. Blackwing oh, cut Yes, uh, Blackwing. Blackwing runners. I mean, yeah. Just
2: just one last final thought, kind of going off of him being go. Blackwing and me being Stiltman. <laughs> Daredevil has a very weird wh- roster of bad guys.
3: A terrible roster I of mean, bad guys. Because he's got
2: he's got he's got Electra, Daredevil, and. Uh, no, I'm sorry. he's bullseye. Uh, bullseye and Kingpin, all of whom are kind of grounded and exist within his world. And he's got these weirdos who, who are like even Spider-Man. They're like sub-Spider-Man bad guys. Like... <laughs> he's got,
1: <laughs> yeah, no. he's he's got a, like a fourth string. Uh... Like he has scouts. 2 a the janitor to deal with.
2: He has
3: two A-listers in Kingpin and Bullseye. Mm-hmm. He has maybe a low-tier B-lister in the Owl. Maybe a mid-tier C lister in Typhoid Mary, mm-hmm. and then a load of D listers.
2: I have no idea. Yeah, what they're yeah, they're no, bad. Right, yeah. you, you, uh, you shouldn't know any. None
0: of this matters. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know what. So, the... to... okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm done. I feel like we can cut now, but uh
3: yeah i was just going to say to to, to close out our uh our next conversation mm-hmm. will be the uh the promised discussion of x2 x-men united x2 the wrath of khan
0: x2 electric boogaloo x2 yes, escape yeah. from pirate's cove <laughs> x2 the legend of curly x2 Gold. high voltage x2 the secret of the ooze <laughs> x2 blood hunt <laughs> Uh, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. X2, out. Dark of yeah. the Moon. <laughs> no, we're good. Uh, uh X2's? x 2s